For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest till her vindication shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a burning torch. The nations so she shall see your vindication and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This is the word of the Lord. This text comes from the third portion of the scroll of Isaiah. We do not know the author's name. We know that he was writing in Judah after a straggling few had come home after being in Babylon for more than 50 years. It's an extremely difficult time. When the people get there, they are so disheartened. Where the temple once stood, there's only a pile of ashes. Where the palace of King David and Solomon once stood, only a pile of ashes. Where once magnificent stones ringed the city and gave it some security at night, still tumble down. Where once huge gates had been closed with the setting sun to protect the city while its inhabitants slept, burned from their hinges and never rebuilt. The people are really discouraged. And this third portion of the scroll, written by someone who's trying to get the people's chins up again, encourage them. Let's take a look. Number one, it says, I will not be silent. I will not rest until the, it says vindication here in our New Revised Standard Version. That's not a word I use before breakfast every day. Vindication. I've heard it, I've seen it, I know how to spell it, but it's not a word I use often. So I looked in the Tanakh, the most recent translation of the Hebrew Scriptures by American rabbis. They use a word we know better. Victory. Isn't that a better word for us? I will not be silent. I will not rest until my people, Judah, my city, Jerusalem, know victory. In Finland, probably their best-read, most popular writer of the last 40 years or so is a fellow named Arto Pasolini, uh, born in 1942, right in the heart of World War II, and grew up, went on to college, became a journalist, was really struggling with whether he had the courage to give up his day job, as it were, to become a writer of novels, finally took a chance and wrote one called The Year of the Hare. It's an unusual story, but it's now been translated into 27 different languages. It's sold more than a couple million copies in all the years it's been out. It's about a young journalist. Write about something you know, right? It's about a young journalist who's driving through northernmost Finland late one afternoon in summer, enjoying these last rays of a sun that will almost disappear for the next six months. 
when a rabbit suddenly runs across in front of his car. Not a little cottontail like we have in Tulsa. These are big rabbits from the Arctic Circle. Ran across, tried to brake, turned the car. He heard the thump underneath and saw the rabbit limping off into the sage. So he pulled over his car and went looking for this wounded animal to see if he could possibly get it to help. Every time he would think he was just about ready to catch hold of it, it would scurry a little bit farther. He would go farther after it. It would scurry a little farther. And finally, he ended up where there was a big sign saying this was a national game preserve. And he decided to take a more in-depth look at what was going on here and finally decided that he felt something in this place where animals were cared for, looked after, cherished almost. When he was away from the city with all of its noise, how much purer everything smelled, how much better everything tasted. The year of the hare. He decides to spend a whole year working at the preserve. That's what the story is about, of how he discovers things that are important, and things that he once thought were important are not nearly so important now. One day there's a raging fire sweeping through the preserve. He's frantically working with others to try to put out the fire, and it's a growing experience for him. There are some things we can control, some things we can't, some things we can prevent, others that we cannot. As I read one critic's synopsis of his work, we're talking about accepting things you can't change, working hard to change things you can. And my mind moved back a long time ago. I was nine years old when my father became a part of Alcoholics Anonymous. We lived in a small gas camp house, one bathroom for the five of us. A prayer that my dad was taught at Alcoholics Anonymous became so important to his recovery that he actually taped it to the mirror in the bathroom so that every time he brushed his teeth and every time he went to shave, he would see this little prayer. But we all used the same bathroom. So when I brushed my teeth, I would see this little prayer taped to the mirror day after day. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can and wisdom to know the difference. Help me accept what I cannot change, change what I can, and wisdom to know the difference. But notice that that prayer, like all prayers, begins with God. Some things I can do, some things I can't do, and other things that we're really going to be absolutely dependent upon God to do. Number two, this author says to this small bedraggled group of folks, God is going to give your country, Judah, and your city, Jerusalem, a new name. But that would be true then for all the people as well, to have a new name, a new beginning. Last weekend, there was a wonderful article in the Tulsa World newspaper with two big pictures of our Eastern Orthodox Christian friends here in Tulsa. 
I recognized several people in the two pictures. The one I knew best of all is Father Bill Christ. Father Bill Christ is head of our Greek Orthodox Church just a few blocks from us. Gail and I go to the Greek festival almost every year. If we have anyone with us who's not been before, we encourage them to go into the sanctuary and we listen to Father Christ to describe all the beautiful iconography again. We enjoy the food, enjoy watching uh, the young uh, Greek uh, girls and boys do the Greek dances and so on. Father Bill Christ is a part of the Jewish dialogue, the Christian dialogue group I'm in. He's a part of our downtown clergy group. When it's our turn to eat at his place, he cooks the lunch himself. It's always absolutely wonderful, I can assure you. But in this article, he was talking about the reason for the two pictures. If you saw it, you know that right there on the banks of the Arkansas River, down here at the 31st Street Bridge, there was a large, beautiful ice sculpture of the Eastern Orthodox Cross. And in the background, you can see part of the Arkansas River. Now, the Arkansas River is not very pretty this time of year, particularly when we've had no rain. It looks really muddy, and there's not a great deal of water there. Anyway, here's this beautiful cross made of, of, of ice just shimmering in the sunlight. And they have proper readings from the scriptures and then prayers, and then they push it into the river. Now, this is true of all Eastern Orthodoxy, and Father Christ was explaining this in the article. He said, well, we Eastern Orthodox not only celebrate on Epiphany, the coming of the Magi, first Gentiles to see Jesus, but we also deal with the baptism of Jesus on the same day. Now, we Protestant Christians are just a few days later. If you were here last Sunday morning and heard Dr. Tankersley read the gospel lection appropriate for the day, it was, in fact, about Jesus being baptized by John. So we were just three days later. But nonetheless, the epiphany, coming of the Magi, and the baptism of Jesus in a river. And then Father Chris was also reminding people who read the article that whenever our astronomers are looking for possible life on other planets, they say if they find any evidence that there's ever been water there, there's a chance of life as we would recognize it. No water, no life as we recognize it. And Father Chris was saying, you see, water is symbolic of life force. It was moving water into which Jesus was baptized. A voice, the Spirit of God saying to him, you are my beloved Son. And every time we baptize here, you know, we're praying that God's Spirit will whisper to all of us, Oh, I know Ava Grace. I know Meredith Rose. I know you too. I know your name. You're my daughter. You're my son. A wonderful name you have. You are a child of God. Number three, this author then reminds them of the names they've had for their country and their city. Forsaken has been your name. Desolate has been your name. Thirteen months from now, our Barton Clinton Gordy presenter is going to be uh, Dr. Brueggemann. Uh, Dr. Walter Brueggemann is considered one of the very finest Christian scholars of the Hebrew Scriptures. He has a two-volume commentary on this book of Isaiah. And in his book, he says, this term translated forsaken for us is literally in Hebrew divorced. And he said, you have to go back 
all those centuries ago and remember that it was a man's world that women didn't get to divorce. Only men got to divorce. And all they had to do in many of the cultures in the Middle East was say to the woman three times, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and she was to pack up and go. Go where? Go across the sand dunes and hope there was somebody who would claim her because a woman without a man to fend for her was absolutely vulnerable to anybody and anything. This is the word used of Judah and Jerusalem. You have been divorced. You have been so vulnerable. The other day in the Wall Street Journal, there was an article written by Faye Vincent. You baseball fans will recognize that name, of course. He was commissioner of Major League Baseball for some years, an attorney before that. In this article, he was saying that at his age, he keeps telling children and grandchildren stories from long ago. Oh, they moan and complain, he said. I tell them anyway, because one day they'll be old enough to realize how important the stories were. He said, I think back to a time when I was much, much younger. I really relished these stories from older people. Once he said, when I was a very young attorney, I had lunch with a very old attorney who started telling me a story that when he was right out of law school, he clerked for Oliver Wendell Holmes. And he said, no way. Yes, yes, I did. And Oliver Wendell Holmes one day was saying to all of us, I'm sick of hearing about how difficult the fighting is in this World War I. They should have been with me at Antietam. He had been a soldier in the Civil War. And what he could describe about that horrible battle at Antietam people in World War I needed to hear. And Faye Vincent, of course, would be a part of World War II. In the article, he talked about listening to baseball players, particularly the oldest ones. He said, I love to hear them tell stories about baseball, but if you really listen, they would tell you stories about things even more important than baseball. He said, I'll never forget Bob Feller one night at dinner telling me about what it was like to fight on the USS Alabama during World War II. And I'll never forget Warren Spahn telling me about being at Remagen Bridge. As I read that, I thought, Remagen Bridge and Warren Spahn, I know this story. It was some years ago now that we were having lunch one Sunday after church. And as we had gotten our salads at the buffet, I said to Gail, that guy looks like Warren Spahn. And she said, who? And I said, Warren Spahn, maybe the greatest left-hander ever to throw a baseball. And she said, well, why don't you speak to him? So I walked over and said, are you Mr. Spahn? He said, I am. I said, if you would shake my hand, my father would pay $20 to shake my hand next. In all those years when we listened to baseball on the radio, the Milwaukee Braves were my dad's team. How many nights he listened to you, then they're describing your pitching those ball games for the Milwaukee Braves. He loved Dale Crandall and all those guys on the Braves. Well, thank you very much, he said. I said, well, sorry to have interrupted your meal, Mr. Spahn. Glad to meet you. And I went back. Well, 
when I got home, this was before email, I wrote to my parents. And I wrote to my brother and sister, and I said, you're never going to believe it. I met Warren Spahn. I got to shake his hand. My brother wrote back to me and said, well, when you were a senior in high school and had to work all summer, uh, I got to go on vacation with mom and dad. He's four years younger than I am. And we stopped in Milwaukee and saw the Braves play ball. Warren Spahn pitched, and I've saved that program all these years. Any chance you could get Mr. Spahn to autograph my program? <laughs> so I said, send it to me. So he mailed it to me, and I put it in the glove compartment of my car, and every Sunday I would look at the buffet, no Warren Spahn. We got all the way to Christmas time, and I started asking people I thought might know, where does one get in touch with Warren Spawn? And one person told me about somebody else, and that one about somebody else, and eventually I got a phone number. And I called him and told him who I was. He remembered. I said, my brother saw you pitch one time when he was 14 years old, and he saved the program all these years. What a Christmas present if you would autograph that program for him. He said, if you're willing to drive out here, I'm willing to sign it. And I said, I'll be there in an hour. Well, I stopped by a sporting goods store and bought two baseballs and took them along. I thought, uh, my two boys would love to have autographed balls. So I got to his home, rang the doorbell, and he said, come on in. We just made a pot of coffee. Come in the kitchen. So we went in the kitchen, he and his wife and I, and we sat down, and he signed the program, and he signed both of those baseballs. But Mr. Spawn was a talker, and it was fun to just sit there and have coffee with him and listen to him talk. He talked about how weak today's pitchers are. They think they've done something special if they go five innings, six innings, seven innings. He said, I took batting practice every day because I didn't want them to pull me in the eighth inning to put in a pinch hitter. I wanted to hit well enough they'd let me hit because when they put that ball in my hand to start the game, I wanted that ball in my hand when the game was over. Well, one night he said out in Candlestick Park in San Francisco, I got locked up, locked up with one Marischal, and he and I pitched nine innings, nothing to nothing. We both pitched number 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 innings. In the bottom of the 16th, he said, I let a curveball slip just a little, and Willie Mays knocked it into the bay, he said. We went 16, both of us, he said. I said, Mr. Spahn, I remember your career was interrupted by the war. Well, yeah, it was, he said. And then I asked him, what unit were you in? And he started telling me about that. He wasn't so far from where my dad was with that third army that Patton was rushing toward Berlin. They got to the Rhine River to a place called Remagen. I've been there. It was a magnificent bridge. I've seen pictures of it. When Hitler realized the Allies were really moving at that point, he was having all the bridges on the Rhine blown up so the Allied forces could not get across. There was a terrific battle at Remagen, and we held that bridge until 8,000 troops got across within one 24-hour period, moving straight toward Berlin before there was a counterattack and the bridge was destroyed. 
Warren Spahn was at the bridge at Rudmagen. He was one of 8,000 who went running across that bridge to try to get to Berlin and bring that war to a close. There have been a lot of hard times. Pitching 16 innings is nothing compared to being at Remagen Bridge when all those young men were dying. Forsaken, desolate. I have a new name for you, God said. A new name. Now you shall be called Hepzibah and Beulah. Hepzibah is a woman's name fairly common in Israel today. It's even the name of a department store in Tel Aviv. My delight. You are my delight. And Gula means married. And every July we sing, Far away the noise of strife upon my ears are falling. And we sing, Dwelling in Beulah land, in married land. God Almighty has come to marry us. When John wrote his revelation, he pictured the church, the church formed by the death and resurrection of Jesus as being like a bride coming down the stairway to meet her groom, our Lord Jesus. Some orders of nuns actually wear wedding rings to symbolize they are married only to Christ. As a bridegroom rejoices in the bride, so I, your God, rejoice and delight in you. Last Saturday, eight days ago, what a tragedy in Tucson. We keep having these every so often. Six people died. So many people shot. A congresswoman still doing pretty well, but facing a difficult, difficult uphill battle. There was a group, a small group up in Kansas, who go and put on demonstrations at all such horrible places. They usually follow wherever young servicemen and women have been killed in Iraq, now Afghanistan, and they picket just outside the cemetery gates. They can stand on public land like sidewalks, and their signs are hateful and mean. They just have one message. The United States has the troubles that it has because we treat gay and lesbians as if they are citizens of this country and that they have rights in this country. So they show up at all these military funerals and their signs say, your son died, your daughter died because America honors gays and lesbians. They started toward Tucson last weekend they were planning to be there with these horrible signs at the funeral of a nine-year-old girl. Your daughter died because America honors gays. And the Arizona legislature, both houses, then signed by the governor, said, no, not this time, not in Tucson. You will be arrested at the city limits. And they stayed in Kansas. A few years ago, they suddenly had shown up in Durham, North Carolina. They, well, somebody follows them, tries to keep up with what they're doing next. This time, they were going to picket the next morning a Lutheran church in Durham, St. Paul's Lutheran. Because the Lutherans had decided to have a statement in their discipline that says, 
all people. That's it. Just all people are children of God and are entitled to the ministries of God's church. So this hate group from Kansas showed up. That Sunday morning, the preacher said he had worried about how his people who had not heard that these folks from Kansas were going to be there would react. So he called just a, a little handful of his members, and they decided to remember the 23rd Psalm. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. And between the side work where these protesters would be, legally be, and the front door of St. Paul's, they put a beautiful dining table, four chairs, china, crystal, sterling silver, candles, flowers in the middle. And the pastor said the group arrived and turned and walked away. Do you really think they got it? Somebody asked, and he said, I don't know, but my people 